Cool? Okay, great. Uh, welcome, everyone. We're going to get started. Um, I'm Rocky. I'm the director of the New York City Effective Altruism Group and one of the organizers of the conference. And today I am going to be quasi-interviewing Dave Cumin Heidi, who is the president of the Humane League. Under his leadership, the Humane League has grown into an international presence with offices spanning from Atlanta to Tokyo, winning hundreds of campaigns against some of the largest food corporations in the world, and reaching millions of young people each year with a message of compassion for farm animals. Uh, Dave is also on the boards of Balanced and Sentient Media, um, and he'll tell us a little bit about the platform that we'll be using in addition to Swapcard during today's talk. So, welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, everyone. Uh, very happy to be here. So today we're going to be doing a mix of Rocky's and the audience's questions. Um, so I know that now I know that there's an event platform, but I also set up this morning uh, something that we use at THL for like our town halls and that kind of thing. So you can go to this website on your phone, slide.do slash humane, and you can enter in your own questions that you'd like to ask or vote to move to the top uh, questions that are already there that you'd like to see answered. So with that, should we get started, Rocky? Great, yeah. Um, so maybe um, just to get started, you could give us just a brief overview of your work over the past decade. Sure, uh, well, it's actually, it's great to be back here in Boston because my, uh, I grew up in this area and my start at the Humane League was running the Humane League of Boston back when it was just the Humane League of Boston and the Humane League of Philadelphia the Humane League of Baltimore. Uh, so I did campus organizing for years all around the city, uh, getting universities to go cage-free, handing out booklets on factory farming and vegetarian eating. And I have very vivid memories of restocking news racks like by the subway stations with uh, PETA's uh, veg starter kit. Just like my entire apartment was always full of those boxes. So anyway, they did that for many years. Um, and the Humane League has grown. I, I was actually the first paid full-time employee, um, and now we have well over 100. We've got offices in uh, Japan, in the UK, in Mexico. Uh, our, our biggest platform, uh, our program has been corporate campaigns to get companies to commit to switching away from battery cage egg farms to increase the welfare of the chickens raised and killed for meat called broiler chickens. We also do a lot of community organizing, training of volunteers, um, education programs and so forth. So a, a, a somewhat broad range of programs, but most of the focus in the last years has been on that kind of institutional change, trying to uh, reduce some of the, the greatest harms in factory farming. We're just starting to engage in political advocacy work in the US. We've done a little bit of ballot initiative work, including question three here in Massachusetts to ban intensive confinement on farms. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what I've been doing the last decade or so. Okay, awesome. And before I uh, dive in, just a reminder for people to add in their questions, either through the uh, website there or through a swap card. Um, but I'll just ask you one other uh, kind of orienting question to get started. Um, why should people interested in effective altruism choose to work on animal welfare? Yeah, that's, that's a, a great question. So, uh, you know, uh, I think a lot of us in the animal community were very aligned with what would become EA before EA really existed. I remember um, I got into animal advocacy like a lot of people through reading Peter Singer, uh, and first not reading his animal work, but reading um, his other kind of just philosophical writings. And I would go and Google utilitarianism when I was a kid, and I found Felicia, the original kind of like utilitarian message board back in the day, and that I think a lot of like the 
uh, EA higher-ups who came from that board, and I, so I recognize their names now at these kinds of events. Uh, and I think, for me, there's just this, this clear, oh, the reason that there's such an overlap from the beginning is that you look at what, like, what do EAs care about? It's uh, tractability, uh, scale, neglectedness. And to me, the animal issue sits at this really interesting intersection where you have something like this diverse portfolio you can invest in. You have something like global health, which is like a really, really safe investment. You can track really closely what your money is doing. You're creating this really tangible, meaningful difference in people's lives. There's governments working on it. There's huge NGOs and coalitions working on it. This is like your like bonds. And then you have your more specula uh, speculative things, maybe like your crypto. So this is like uh, long-termism, uh, artificial intelligence alignment. No one's exactly sure exactly how we're going to solve these problems. Um, so a lot of what we're trying to do is, is more speculative, but also the returns can be just astronomically high. To me, working on factory farming is a really nice kind of in-between uh, that I'm really glad is part of this portfolio where we're still on the edges. We're still on the frontier. There's still a lot of interesting, experimental, speculative things happening, but we're also starting to see real tractability. We're passing laws, we're changing the lives of animals on farms, we're seeing high-tech meat alternatives coming to market very rapidly. And just as far as like being in the movement, it's a very exciting time. There's a lot of resources coming to the movement, both people and money uh, and technologies. And yeah, I think I, I'm definitely of the mind that all these EA cause areas can coexist and, and support each other very successfully. So I don't think that the animal folks should be taking resources from anywhere else, but I think that for those who feel this kind of call to work on this issue, um, that it's a, it's a very exciting time to be working on animal uh, factory farming as a cause area. And also that, um, yeah, I, I think over the next few years, we're gonna see a, a huge increase in impact and tractability. Um, yeah, so th that's why EAs should care about animals. Awesome, great. Um, what are the biggest achievements and challenges in the animal welfare area? Hmm, well, uh, that's an interesting question. I, I think the, well, my mind immediately goes to what a lot of the groups have been working on in the last years, which is intensive confinement. So this started in, in Europe a few decades ago, trying to get rid of battery cages. Many of you are probably familiar with them. They're like the size of a filing cabinet drawer. Seven or more hens live a year plus. Um, laying eggs is rightly considered one of the cruelest forms of farming in the world. And Europe, uh, God, 20 plus years ago now, banned what are called barren battery cages. They moved them to enriched cages. So it's a very small incremental step, but it was kind of first major institutional win along these lines. Then we got Prop 2 in California, kind of replicating that work in the US. Then we started working on corporate campaigns, passing more laws. We're at a point now in, in Europe, and uh, in, in a lot of, especially Western Europe, battery cages are almost eradicated. In the US, we just hit 33% cage-free. Um, so a third, and you know, when I started working on college campuses on this issue, like I was talking about in Boston, I mean, it was like two, three percentage points maybe in the US. So to me, this is an example of a major success like on the scoreboard that's real, where it's like hundreds of millions of animals actually having transformed lives. And that is really exciting. It means that we're actually forcing industry to make millions and millions of dollars of investments, to change their approach, to start accepting laws. I mean, the United Egg Producers no longer fights the laws that are being passed um, to regulate their farms. So as far as like tangible real world change, to me, that's one of the, the most exciting things because it's like the actual fruits 
of many, many years of concentrated efforts. Um, and I think that it's important to focus on these real world results to, you know, tractability, right? Like what are we actually doing for the animals on farms? That said, in a, in a less tangible sense, I think that the suffering of animals, knowledge about factory farming, has become a much more salient issue among, you know, the average person. I think the average awareness has gone up quite a bit. We see enormous success with our ballot initiatives, winning in landslides. Every time, I think this is like in many ways a, a cause whose time has come or however you like to put the, the saying, like it, we're becoming much more salient. And we're just seeing, like I said, a lot more resources coming to this cause because of that. We're starting to be taken seriously, not just as a political issue, but um, yeah, as a cause area for EAs and others to get involved with. So I think to me, that's like the most important indicator of future success. And just the amount of growth we're seeing internationally, essentially like every corner of the earth now has animal groups working together, uh, whether it's on the corporate campaigns or their own projects. This is all very, very exciting compared to even, I would say five years ago. So it's a little bit less tangible, but I think to me that's like the, the greatest indicator of future success. And I, and I even haven't even touched on like alternative proteins and, and meat replacements. I mean, that's, uh, it's, you know, it's next to my line of work doing advocacy work, but I mean, that's just been explosive growth. Anyone who's been vegetarian for more than a few years knows exactly what I'm talking about, just being in the supermarket. Um, that is just, the fact that, you know, McDonald's has got a vegan burger. This is a, a real sign of the times. Cool. Um, could you say a little bit about the cost effectiveness of, I guess, animal work at large and cage-free campaigns specifically, and maybe how that's changed over the time that you've been working in the area? Sure. Um, so as far as the cost effectiveness of cage-free campaigns, uh, I can defer to the experts here. A really awesome researcher uh, named Solis, who works at Rethink Priorities, wrote a very long report about the effectiveness of cage-free campaigns between 2005 and 2018, I think. And uh, he said that for every dollar that was spent, between nine and like 120 chicken years outside of a cage were bought. So this is like, a, it's a big range, but even the worst case scenario of nine years per dollar, very good investment. Um, so that's quite heartening. But I think in general, we're talking about most of the work originally being done by a very, very small movement with very small groups, a small number of activists working on the ballot initiatives, working on these corporate campaigns. And like I said, in the US, we're like a third of the way there already. So it's very impactful. And I think that is true across the board when you talk about animal issues. I mean, we're talking about billions of individuals. Just getting a single corporate policy over years can impact tens of millions of individual animals. It's very hard to think of a cause area where you can have such a broad impact on so many individuals for such uh, a small investment of time and money and manpower. Awesome, great. Um, what what happens after cage free? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. So I I often get asked this by animal activists, like, well, how do we escalate things? Um, and I think I, I often want to start with the word of warning that we have to finish the job on cage-free. You know, it's still legal in most states. The majority of chickens in the United States are still in battery cages. We haven't even finished in Europe yet. And I think it's very important as a movement, we complete this mission so that we have this kind of like marquee victory that we've succeeded on that we to this point do not have yet. And I think that gives us a lot of leverage for whatever does come next. So there's some 
obvious kind of welfare uh, improvements that could come next. So we've already been working on what's called the better chicken commitment. It helps not the, the chickens laying eggs, but the chickens who are raising killed for meat. But I, I think that's not exactly how I think about the strategy is like an escalating set of welfare asks, but rather what other kinds of innovation, what other strategies should we be looking into? So I'm very excited about the growing interest in political advocacy, both in EA and in the farm animal movement. And I think it's to be determined whether like escalating welfare asks are the right strategy there or if there's other things we should be looking into. So for example, as meat alternatives become cheaper, more accessible to public institutions, it could be the case that institutional change should shift away from things like cage-free and towards meat reduction purchasing policies, switching out you know, chicken nuggets in like military facilities and public schools and hospitals to vegetarian chicken nugget alternatives and so forth. So I think we should just be very agnostic about the ask as long as it's, you know, high impact for animals and seems uh, like it's achievable. Very cool. Um, I guess related to that, what do you think we can learn from other social and political movements? Uh, yeah, I think we can learn a lot. Um, you know, the animal movement is unique in a lot of ways. It's a, it's a purely an ally movement, right? So like none of us are farm animals, uh, as far as I know. Um, and for that reason, it's a little bit different than, say, uh, a movement I, I think about and talk about a lot, which is marriage equality. Um, but that said, uh, just some of the basic things. First of all, re resilience and toughness. I think it's so important if you're an advocate to avoid burnout, to read the stories of social movements and activists who have spent decades building towards success and just reading about the hardships that they have to go through, the setbacks and the failures I find to be incredibly inspirational and important in sustaining my work. Um, so speaking of marriage equality, uh, I do, I've recommended the book to like everyone I talked to, a book that came out last year, I think, called The Engagement by um, a journalist named Sasha Eisenberg. It's about the history of the fight for gay marriage in the US is just incredibly good and inspirational. And while what we're working on probably isn't gonna be decided in like a big Supreme Court case or something like this, there's so much that you can learn from that book. I mean, just one thing that comes to mind, the importance of research to uh, their cause. Like they had been making, uh, the, the NGOs and activists working on the issue, They've been making this mistake with voters where they were thinking like activists, like this is an issue of justice, we're gonna bring a message to you from uh, judges and other authority figures about, you know, you need to be on the right side of history, you know, this is right and this is wrong and you should know better and so forth. And anyone who's worked in animal advocacy is very familiar with <laughs> this way of talking about our issues, right? Like we're in the moral, we're morally correct and therefore uh, listen to my argument and get on board. But unfortunately, that just isn't very effective. And what uh, some really intelligent, enterprising activists did uh, in the marriage equality movement is they started conducting a lot of these very intensive focus groups and interviews. And they realized that to the average American voter, it was much more compelling to talk to them about marriage and love um, in a much more kind of emotional and human way and make it less about like this is a moral issue of right and wrong and more kind of showing people uh, that marriage is about love, whether you're gay and lesbian or straight. And uh, this is how we saw the turnaround after the devastating loss in California. We started seeing just huge increases um, in support from especially uh, like moms with kids in school. It's a very, very easy target for this one. Uh, but read the book, you'll get all the details. 
Anyways, to me, that, that's just an obvious example of uh, something that's just so relatable to animal activists. Like, we always come to this with, you know, our, uh, on our high horse, right? Like, we, we're on the morally correct side of history, and therefore, like, that's going to be my argument. But we can't even think about the question correctly because our minds are so poisoned from being animal rights activists for so long. We don't even know where to start. So, yeah, that, that's a big takeaway for me. Um, I recommend another book called... Um, Engines of Liberty that, among other cause areas, talks about how the National Rifle Association was successful in changing the average American's interpretation of the Second Amendment. And it's, you know, something I'm less enthusiastic about than gay marriage, but nonetheless is, is very, very compelling where you have a small group of people, like the animal rights movement, who have a pretty extreme ideology and point of view that most people would think is kind of weird or out there. And in a matter of decades, they basically one, I mean, they basically completely got everyone on board with, with or not everyone, but enough people on board with uh, how they view things. And they did it strategically, systematically, um, very, very thought-provoking. So yeah, two, two must-read books for activists, my point of view. Awesome, great. Um, yeah, I guess kind of like uh, writing off of that, um, we have one question that says, farm animal welfare is a unique EA cause area with queer adversaries animal agriculture. How has that shaped the strategies and tactics and how should EAs think about that? Um, seems like some of the examples you were just pulling from maybe had clearer adversaries than those within the EA cause umbrella. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting framing. Let me think about that for a second. I mean, I think if we look at something like um, global health and poverty, there's definitely some overlap there where it's about like major coordination problems, uh, governments working with NGOs and trying to solve these huge logistical issues and working with supply chains and big companies. You know, this is all very similar to um, trying to work on factory farming as an issue. But yeah, having, the, having an adversary out there definitely does change things a bit. I'm trying to think about what would be relevant though. I mean, it, it certainly changes the game politically speaking where there, if we're trying to work on a ballot initiative, there's someone out there who's going to be paid to speak against us and, and tour around and debate. There's going to be opposition ads rolling and that kind of thing. So I think it just changes the nature of how you prepare for what you're trying to do. I mean, it has benefits as well. I think working on an adversarial issue like animals, it's going to increase uh, what's called intensity of preference among the volunteers, right? This isn't just some, like, this isn't for animal people in general, like animal activists. They have very high intensity of preference. They're like the NRA people, where this is like a single issue thing. Like, this is what you really care about. You do anything to help the animals. You're really committed to the cause. And I think that's it's somewhat bred, not just from how severe the issue is, but also from this adversarial feeling of, like, it's us against them. It, it can be very beneficial in getting people fired up, but it can also be, you know, it comes with the harm of having somewhere out, someone out there trying to get you, but also, um, I don't know, that the sense of conflict can be problematic. I mean, especially when making progress often means working with our adversaries. Uh, so Leah Garces has a wonderful book. She's my, my colleague at Mercy for Animals. Um, the, I know the subtitle is Turning Adversaries into Allies. Bruce, do you remember the title? Grilled, Turning Adversaries and Allies by Leah Garces, third book recommendation. Um, yeah, so I think that it's important to keep in mind that like a lot of the progress, we're going to need these companies to change over time, right? It's not just about 
crushing them, <laughs> although often it is. Um, yeah, or like the United Egg Producers, right? They were our adversaries at first, and then as they slowly realized that this is a losing issue for them, they came around, and now they can help lobby for uh, these state laws because it's better for them to have one standard for eggs across the country rather than many, many, many different standards uh, for their um, for the groups that they represent. So, anyways, yeah, just just like anything, it's like a, a different strategic situation. I don't know if there's like a a core salient difference from the other cause areas, though, that comes from it. That's great. Cool. Um, another question is about how you basically make sure that once you pass a policy or pass legislation mm. that there's compliance. Um, so maybe you could describe a little bit about, I guess, the measurement systems you have in place for that and how big of a problem it is or potential sure. solutions. Yeah, okay. So, so just a little context for folks who might not be familiar with um, the animal movements, campaigns over the last years. Uh, essentially, a lot of the progress has come from corporate campaigns. So this is when groups like the Humane League go to a company and we say, hey, we'd like you to make a commitment that says we're, we're no longer going to buy um, eggs from battery cage farms. We're only going to buy cage-free eggs after a certain date. And they put that on their website. They make a press release about it often. Uh, and, and then they have a few years to phase it out. So obviously a major concern is like these companies are often making these commitments under duress. They're facing a negative campaign. You know, they're just putting out a press release. It's not like this is like a binding contract. So uh, why do we think anything is going to change? Well, there's a few elements here. The, the theory of change foremost is that we need to get these public commitments out there so that the producers see the writing on the wall and they say, okay, we need to start shifting over our production to meet demand from these folks. Now, a lot of these are big publicly traded companies, and it's unlikely that their lawyers are gonna let them make these kinds of binding statements and get positive uh, media coverage from it, just willy-nilly. Like, if we're talking about big, serious corporations, they're unlikely to just lie about this kind of thing. So that, that's kind of like the first line of defense. But more importantly, what we need to do is pass the statewide laws that ultimately enforce these commitments. So we've seen many, like basically all the major companies have made cage-free commitments. And then in the last few years, thanks to the work of uh, largely the Humane Society of the United States, um, we've seen, it's like up to 10 now, states have banned the production of battery cage eggs. Um, and we've also seen sales bans in California and Massachusetts that impact other states. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> the Supreme Court last Monday uh, decided that they will be hearing a challenge from the pork producers on these state laws uh, that adds an element of risk to all this. But this is a, <laughs> that aside, this is a key part of the theory of change, is that we remove the opposition to the laws by getting all the public companies to commit to saying that they're against these cages. We've already seen the shift to a third to cage free, and then you back it up with the laws. So it's a long process. It's similar to what we've seen happen in Europe, though, uh, and that's the idea. We, we do also what are called enforcement campaigns, throughout this, where we get the companies who've committed to start reporting to their investors and to the public what percentage they've gone cage-free and explain how they're going to shift their supply chain to get to 100%. So that's kind of the back end of the corporate stuff. I'd say about half, maybe a little bit more than half uh, of our corporate work in the last two years has been on that enforcement side of things. Cool. Um, just maybe one more question related to legislation and legislative initiatives. Um, what do you think about bills or ballot initiatives on federal and state levels that would ban animal farming entirely or stop the building of new farms or a lot to that slaughterhouses? Um, do you think that the Humane League should get involved in those efforts to a larger extent and maybe comparison between that and more welfare focused mm. 
initiatives? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, I, many people may have seen in the news like the, the Cory Booker supported bill to ban factory farms. I know there's a similar ballot initiative in Colorado and in another state, Oregon, to ban, essentially ban animal farming. Um, and the Humane League is not involved in those efforts. Uh, I mean, I think, frankly, um, they are not realistic. And, well, I mean, I know they're definitely not realistic. But more importantly, if we, I don't think that they're likely to persuade many people to join our cause. And I think that there's, there's been, for a long time, a feeling in the, in the community of animal activists, especially maybe 10 years ago, that this is like a numbers game and we need to persuade a lot of people to switch over to our side. Like we've got, you know, the average American consumers and then we've got the vegans and we're just gonna like slowly one by one add to the good side, right? And then reach some tipping point. But I actually think this is, is not a very productive way of looking at it. I think adding more activists is very good. That's something we should be trying to do. But instead I think about like a thermometer that represents like the average feeling about the farm animal issue across Americans. And what we should actually be doing is slowly ticking that up in a really broad way. And that's not about getting someone to 100% come to our side, but instead come a little bit to our side and be like, okay, listen, you don't need to vote to ban all farms, but don't you agree that uh, you know, animals shouldn't be kept in a cage the size of their body for their entire life? We shouldn't be mutilating them without painkillers. There's a long way to go <laughs> where people can agree with us, where we can keep rationing things up. And again, going back to my favorite analogy with marriage equality, we saw a very, very similar shift in public opinion on this issue over time. It was little bit by little bit. It wasn't just like enough people switching 100% immediately. Um, yeah, so I, I think that we need to focus on passing real laws. Like there's just no way that those initiatives will be successful. So to, unless there's a really clear like media motivation, like okay, it won't be successful, we'll get a ton of positive press, then maybe. But that seems unlikely. So I don't know, I'm just like, I really wish the animal movement was more focused on results, tangible results. Yeah, so I guess uh, writing off of that, a uh, few questions coming in. Um, so um, would you say, is, I'll throw a few at you at once. Um, so is there a distinction between banning all animal farming versus phasing out uh, cathos, which for those who don't know, is a concentrated animal feeding operations um, over say, many decades, um, and I guess kind of tied in with that since mentioned a few efforts that uh, THL is not involved in, how do you maintain positive relationships with other animal advocacy orgs who object to THL's more uh, incrementalist approach to ending animal farming? Okay, I'll start at the beginning, uh, the first part of the question. So uh, the, what about laws that ban CAFOs rather than all farming, is that right? Yeah, so phasing out CAFOs over many decades versus trying to ban all animal farming now? I guess um, for me, I, I don't even think we're there yet. Like I, I, something like phasing out CAFOs over a long period of time, like we're barely just winning the cage-free fight that we've been fighting for many decades. Like we are not a real political issue yet. This is how I, animal people need to come down to earth. Like we are really just getting started. Obviously there's been a, a great animal movement for a very long time and that's why we're, we've come as far as we have. But in terms of like playing in the big leagues and passing laws, like we are really not there yet. 
Like, I'm so, we need to get started. We need to, you know, continue to invest more in this. And we're in touch at THL with like dozens of community groups around the country doing really awesome work, doing things like getting meat reduction uh, stuff passed in their cities or, um, yeah, the cage-free bans and so forth. But they're only just beginning to become coordinated. I mean, it's like you go to a state house, right? You go to like a state senator's office and you look at some of the other interest groups like the teachers union or the NRA and they have these lobbying days with hundreds of people who come out to the state house and talk to everyone. Like these are real voting blocks. These are real constituencies who are making things happen. Like we are just barely scratching the surface of having that kind of power and it's gonna take a really long time and serious investment. Now I'm not saying this to be a bummer, it's just you know being real and being sober about where we are. And so we can get started on getting there. You know, I, I look forward to the day when we can be passing laws like that, but we need to start by having a really sober assessment of where things are at, which is like we are not even part of the discussion yet, with a few maybe small exceptions. So I'm obviously incredibly supportive of those kinds of bills, uh, but just not yet. And like, especially when it comes to politics, we need to be as cynical as hell. This is tough often for the animal people, which gets to your next question about like, the Humane League has gotten a lot of flack for being compromising, for working on something like cage-free, when obviously cage-free farms are still very cruel and the animals are still slaughtered. Uh, we're called welfareists in opposition to the abolitionists who are against all uh, forms of animal use. So this is already a struggle for the animal movement, this kind of like realism and cynicism, but politics is gonna have to go to like this whole next level. <laughs> like it's the art of what's achievable, right? The art of the possible. Um, so how do we get along with those groups? Um, well, I think I spent a regret I have from earlier in my advocacy career was being really focused on arguing with people who disagreed with me in this way and the abolitionists and being very annoyed by people who didn't like what I was working on and wanting to persuade them. Uh, but I think I've come to find that, uh, you know, obviously I have a lot more in common with those folks than your average meat eater. So for starters, just like keeping that in mind, like you have 1% disagreement with them, you mostly agree. Um, but also just focusing on doing positive work. You know, if you're supportive of what others are doing, even if you don't get involved, you're open-minded and curious about what they're doing, just focus on your own thing. Just do positive work. The positive people will come to you who are interested in what you're doing. I think it's just like generally much less effective directly trying to persuade someone. Like, oh, you're working on X, you should work on Y for the following reasons. You know, it, it's just not a good use of time. So. I've kind of given up on trying to persuade uh, and just kind of THL just hopes to lead by example um, for people who are interested in our kind of work, but otherwise, yeah, just be friendly with everyone. Cool. Um, okay, we're gonna have a little bit of a change of tune with some very upcoming questions. Okay. Um, how do you, oh, wrong one. Okay, how do you compare the value of, wait a second, this app keeps moving, okay. <laughs> Um, how do you approach weighting the relative importance of suffering for various species of different cognitive abilities? For example, a shrimp versus a pig, and a related question, why chickens? Oh, okay. Um, well, uh, let me start by saying I am not a vet or a scientist, so this is not really my specialty. Um, so I tend to just defer to the experts on this. Uh, I, I recommend actually a very great open philanthropy report that was commissioned a few years ago called, it's like Report on Moral Patienthood or something like this. And I think Rethink Priorities put out something similar recently. So in terms of like if you want 
real experts to give you their best guess on levels of sentience and intelligence and so forth. That's the kind of thing I would look to. Um, but this is, again, I go much more into my kind of like activist mindset about what's going to be achievable and what's the right time to strike on various issues. Um, and chickens to me represent a nice uh, kind of middle ground again where they're the vast majority of land animals killed on farms are chickens, like virtually all of them. So if you're talking about factory farming, you're basically talking about chickens. Like that's what the issue is, uh, or fish. But fish, I just don't think we're there yet. It's like a much more speculative place. We haven't made enough progress on chickens yet to really get the average person as on board with fish rights as with chicken rights. It won't always be that way. But that, to me, that's like immediately the number one thing. It's like, what's achievable? What can we do? I think when it comes to things like shrimp welfare, there's probably some low-hanging fruit out there. I mean, easy for me to say. I'm sure it'll be hard. But relatively speaking, some kind of like shorter-term things that we might be able to do, like ending eye stock ablation or getting some other kind of standards agreed to. But I don't think this should be like a crusading upfront victory. I think we need to start with the cause area, uh, the parts of the cause area that are going to be most appealing to the general public to keep building general regard and concern around the issue. So uh, it's much less about like number of weighted neurons that one policy will result in versus another and more about like what's the most we can do right now that we can actually win. That's, that's the number one question. Cool. Um, what, what do you think is currently missing in the movement? Like, what are some new organizations or projects you'd like to see started? And I guess I'll tie it in with that maybe too. Do you think there are still funding gaps in animal welfare? Hmm. Always funding gaps, yes. <laughs> um, let's see. So I think this is a really interesting question that I don't know the answer to, but I'll share some of the things that I've been wrestling with. So first, when it, when it comes to new things that the movement is missing, I think we need a lot more innovation in our space. And again, I, I'm talking about advocacy only. Obviously, there's like the whole other world of alternative proteins and science where there's just like a whole giant universe of tons of innovation and, and funding and, and projects needed, but I'll let others uh, more expert in this answer that area. But speaking just within the realm of, of animal advocacy work, um, I think there's a real tension here between what you think of as the kind of like foundational EA mindset of like what's the best one or two interventions, great, perfect, let's just like max those out. And that's going to put a beacon up for effective activists. And so for a while, that's been basically corporate campaigns and meat alternatives. And like, obviously, those things should be as funded as possible. But the problem is you can also get a little bit of a brain drain for the other innovation that's needed. So I think there's a real tension here. And I don't know how to solve it. And I don't know what the correct balance is. But it's been something I've been thinking about. It's like, you want to have a lot of the best people at a few of the really great groups, right? So that they're winning as much as possible and achieving really big successes. On the other hand, you also really need really good people to start new projects and to start innovating and to take risky uh, ventures that might fail. So I, that's a tension that I think is yet to be resolved because of this giant bottleneck we have in the movement of good people. So we need more good people entering the space, both promising young people, and I'm really psyched about this conference, having so many college students here, but also higher level executives. Like uh, I talk a lot with my colleagues who run groups. It's very tough to find people for board membership, VP level folks who have long careers. Like the groups have grown very fast, um, and a lot of the activists are still young or have all been hired. <laughs> so so th that's, a, that's a major bottleneck I see that plays into this tension. Um, in terms of some of the actual projects I'd like to see, 
well, obviously I'm very interested in political work and I think that there's a huge range um, of new organizations and projects that need to be started in that field. Um, I'd love to see more work done with investor focused activism and engagement, um, especially with publicly traded corporations, just um, reading about what like engine number one did with Exxon, for example, is a very inspirational story about what can be achieved here. I love to see more people looking to that. Uh, I think more can be done to pressure the veterinary field, which in the United States is about as corrupt as any industry you can possibly imagine, and very little is being done to hold them to account. Um, so that's another project I'd like to see. And then media, I think there's a lot more we can do to get media attention for animals. Um, so yeah, that's just like four off the top of my head. Very cool. Um, we have a specific question about how academics and researchers in quantitative fields can contribute to the farmed animal welfare cause area. Um, I guess I'll expand that and say for our audience here, we probably have a range of backgrounds, current students, academics, um, people within other nonprofits or the private sector. What do you see as, I guess, like the best entry points? I know you were touching on this a little bit already. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think that there's a ton of room for more research in the movement. Um, I think the work that uh, Rethink is doing and somewhat OpenPhil has put out, Phonolytics is really great, but there's just like, I mean, honestly, somewhat I mentioned before, this very qualitative messaging research, um, I think that's something that is really, really missing from the movement um, that we basically can't overinvest in, especially because it's a moving target. So THL started doing a little bit of that this year. So that's not exactly like quantitative, although there's a lot of polling uh, behind it that could be useful. I mean, it really depends on the kind of questions you're trying to answer. There's kind of these foundational questions like related to the, the animal sentience one you mentioned of like, how should we think about insect suffering and so forth. But what I'd really like to see is like practical, actionable research around things like messaging or, oh, here's something, a quant related thing. As we start developing strategies to pass state laws, let's say, um, doing polling, looking at historical election data, so on and so forth, uh, to figure out what states could be good to target, which kinds of candidates we should be looking to support. There's just a huge amount of political science that would involve a lot of quantitative number crunching um, that I think would be quite helpful. As far as entry points, uh, I mean, being here is definitely a, a good start. Um, and I would say connect with folks at Rethink Priorities who are gonna be way more expert in this side of things than me. Cool. Hey, I know we just have a few minutes left, so a few kind of rapid-fire questions for you. Okay. Um, one, biggest tips for avoiding burnout for EAs and activists? Oh, um, yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think the answer is going to be different for everyone, so my kind of cop-out here would be, uh, I think the, the number one thing is, uh, well, having a sense of humor. All the activists I know who've been doing it for a long time, you have to have a sense of humor, probably the darker the better working on these <laughs> kinds of issues. You just can't take anything too seriously or you will burn out. Um, the other is to really get to know yourself. I think a lot of activists uh, or EAs fall into this trap of like, you've got a few of your heroes and people you look up to that you want to be like, and you know, they're at this very high standard. And it might just not be the right fit for your personality to be just like that person. And that's okay. You need to figure out like what kind of work is going to sustain you. Is it something like earning to give, like you basically want to have a normal-ish life and then give away a big chunk of your money to support the activists? Or do you want to be a hardcore activist? Or do you want to be doing data and research? And there's no like single answer that's going to work for everyone. And you shouldn't you know, just be comparing yourself to others and feeling bad. This is like the number one cause of burnout I see, at least in the animal community, with young people. And just accepting that like sometimes we all need to take breaks and vacations 
You could go to, I, I benefit a lot from talk therapy. It's helped me avoid burnout. So I highly recommend that. And just like giving yourself permission to figure out whatever you need. Like it, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? So think about like, how am I gonna still be here doing activism in 40 years? is a much more important question than like, oh, this person worked 10 hours more than me this week and like beating yourself up about it. Cool. Um, do you have a podcast? I do not have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> have you considered making one? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> um, cool. Um, what are the biggest things that you're currently excited about? Hmm. Let's see. I think I am extremely excited. Just looking at how far we've come in the last 10 years, just the number of extremely good people working in the movement. My colleagues at THL or at other groups, um, and the interest from foundations and, and major donors has grown so much. I mean, this is like a very vague and broad answer, but it is incredibly exciting. I mean, anyone who's been in the movement for more than a few years, it's like we used to just have nothing. Like it was. I remember once with a colleague, we had this like this cart that we'd roll around our leaflets on, and we would hand out the booklets on vegetarian eating, and we were at a gay pride parade, handing out the booklets, having a good time, and uh, the trash cleanup came and they threw out our, it was $40, we had bought it with the Humane League's money, at Home Depot, and I remember he started crying because he was like, we've won, you know, this was like a big part of our budget, we're totally screwed, now we have to carry these boxes. Like, this was not that long ago. Um, and anyone who's been in the movement for a while knows exactly what I'm talking about. So to now be in this place where it's like, we're thinking about long-term strategy, multiple groups coordinating across like these giant problems, like that is an awesome place to be. So it's just like, a, just a catch-all, like, it, 10 years ago, if you told me that the movement would be like it is today, I would not have believed you. I'm sure everyone in a similar role would say the same thing. So it just makes me think, like 10 years ago, I hope I feel exactly the same way. Like I cannot have imagined where we are and we seem to be on that trajectory, which is awesome. Cool, thank you, Dave. I guess uh, any closing remarks? Um, any closing remarks? Well, I'm here for the rest of the day and tonight, but if I don't get a chance to connect with you, my email is just my name, davidcomenheide at gmail.com. So please get in touch. I'd love to chat with any of you, especially if you're a young person looking to work in uh, this cause area. I will do everything I can to help you figure out what you should do next. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Perfect, cool, thank you.